0: We turn for our scripture reading this morning to the gospel according to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, let's read together the first 26 verses. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me? which am a woman of Samaria, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, Springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh, And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. We read God's word that far this morning. Let's consider also the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 35. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second commandment of God's law, as we heard earlier, is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth, and that we are not to bow down ourselves to them or serve them. In God's law, God not only commands us to have no other gods before him, which is the first commandment, but he also commands that we are not to worship him in the ways that the heathen worship their gods, which is by graven images. In the first commandment, God teaches us who we must worship and who we must not worship. The second commandment is distinct because in it, God teaches us how we must worship Him and how we must not worship Him. That's the difference between the first two commandments. Now, by nature, we all love image worship of all kinds, whether it is the worship of a bright, shining golden calf, or whether it is the worship of God through a beautiful stained glass window which is intending to depict the Trinity. Whatever kind of graven image it might be, by nature, we love to worship through graven images because we want to be able to see what we can worship and we want it to be pleasing to the eye. But as those who have been redeemed and saved by the Lord Jesus Christ we receive new desires in our hearts so that we long to obey the second commandment as well. We long to worship God in the ways that please him, not in the ways that please our flesh. And the way that pleases God for us to worship him is not with graven images, not with things that we can see with our eyes, but that we are to worship him in spirit, and in truth. So let us hear this commandment this morning that we may grow in obedience and gratitude to God in the whole domain of worship. This commandment has to do with worship. Let's hear the commandment this morning. The second commandment. First of all, we notice the right way to teach God. Secondly, the right way to worship God. And thirdly, the right way to come to God. When the second commandment teaches us about the right way to worship God, it also teaches us, first of all, about the right way to teach God or to communicate God, and the right way then also to learn about God. God says in the second commandment, "'You are not to teach about me by making a graven image of me, and you are not to learn about me through graven images.'" The Catechism explains it this way, that we in no wise represent God by images and that God will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. Since the most ancient of times of human history, the teachers of religion throughout the world have employed a variety of means and methods to teach their people in different places and times and cultures about their God or about their gods, if they are a polytheistic religion. And ordinarily or very frequently, they have employed the method of making graven images in order to try to teach their people what their God or their gods are like. How are we supposed to teach people about what God is like, who God is, his nature, his attributes, his characteristics? How does God want us to communicate what he is like to people? Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in the passage that we read that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. And in truth, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy that God dwells in the light which no man can approach onto. He says that God dwells in this glorious, marvelous, beautiful, bright light. This blinding, divine light that no creature is able to approach into that light in order to see what God actually looks like in his essence. What God is like in his actual being. And he says, No man has seen God at any time, and no man can see God. He is so glorious in his invisible divine nature. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the greatness of God in Isaiah chapter 40 when he says, Who shall you liken God to? To whom will you compare God? He is the incomparable one. He is the indescribable one. He is the ineffable one. He is so great and so glorious. The creator of the heavens and the earth who stretched out the heavens and who looks down upon the earth. The heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. How can you describe him? How can you compare him to something here on this earth? And as we heard in our call to worship from Psalm 145 this morning, God is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The Apostle Paul speaks of the fact that his judgments and his works and his ways are unsearchable and past finding out. God is incomprehensibly great, unimaginably glorious. And therefore, it is impossible, as the Catechism says, to represent God accurately by an image An image which must necessarily be a a portrayal of some kind of creature. God is not a creature. God is the creator who is high and lifted up. And we can also say this, that to reduce the great and glorious God to a dumb image is nothing less than a blasphemy and a degradation of his glory and his honor. God teaches us in the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven or in earth or in the waters under the earth to represent me. You shall not make your sculptures and your paintings, whether it is on canvas or on glass or with wood or stone or gold or silver to try to represent me. You must not do that. God says, you must not do what natural man has been trying to do since the dawn of time. Natural man not only breaks the first commandment, but also the second. Man, first of all, breaks the first commandment when in his mind he invents, he creates, he conceives of a God. Based on the things that he observes in the world around him, he sees the sun, moon, and stars. He sees the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, and from all of the forces of nature, he imagines in his mind a god, and certain gods. But then when he tries to communicate to people what that god is like, he inevitably makes graven images. He inevitably tries to portray, to depict, to represent his gods in the form and fashion of creatures. The children of Israel were seduced by this method of teaching theology. This method of communicating who and what God is again and again throughout their history. They looked at the heathen around them and they saw the impressive ways that they worshipped their gods. And the Israelites pretended to be wiser than God, who had taught them clearly in his law. Don't make graven images. They pretended to be wiser than God who would have them taught not by a statue that just sits there with its ears and its nose and its mouth but it's not able to hear or talk or smell with its eyes that cannot see. It's a dumb image. It's deaf. It's dumb. It's blind. And yet they would worship through it. They would try to learn what God is like from it. Now we, who are Christians living today, must not think either that we are better than the Israelites of old. Really, we're no different from the Israelites, except for the grace and the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ working in us. Just like the Israelites, we too are easily seduced by the ways that the heathen around us try to teach theology and try to teach about their gods and portray their gods. We think, for example, of the famous artists of history who have created what has been called Christian art, the famous men who have made beautiful paintings in which they try to portray God incarnate with colorful paintings, sometimes paintings even that cover the ceiling, for example, in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And these beautiful, impressive works of artistry, they impress us as well. And they're attractive to our eyes and to our flesh. Or just think of today how people try to portray God through film, through television shows, through movies, in which they try to tell the biblical stories, in which they try to portray the Christ and the cross, and in which they even try to portray God himself If not in the form of a human actor, then in the form of a human actor's voice. But in various ways, we humans are attracted to all kinds of methods of communicating what God is like, except for the ones God requires. That's our sinful nature. Now the Catechism teaches us that creatures may be represented and it wants us to be clear and understand that it's okay to make art. It's okay to make paintings. It's, in fact, it's a good thing. We can make beautiful works of art, sculptures, paintings, photographs, videos of God's creatures. And we can rejoice in that and enjoy that and give praise to God for his creation. But God forbids that we make such images in order to teach or communicate what he is like through them, or to try to learn what God is like from them. Rather, the Catechism teaches us that God will have his people taught by the lively preaching of his word. That's how God will have us to teach theology, to communicate to people who he is, and what he is like by the preaching of the word. Not by something visual, but by the preaching of the word. Go back to the passage we read. Jesus is our great teacher and prophet. So we observe Jesus in the text. He comes on his way through Samaria back into Galilee to the Samaritan city of Sychar. And he sits down at the well at midday. And no doubt he was thirsty. And a Samaritan woman comes out of the town of Sychar, comes to the well, and Jesus begins to talk to her. And in that conversation, Jesus said to the woman, Ye worship ye know not what, meaning you Samaritans, you don't know what you are worshiping. We know what we worship, meaning the Jews. We know for salvation is of the Jews. Then he went on to say, The true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. The Father is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, in spirit meaning not by sight but by faith. He is a spirit, an invisible spirit, And he will have us to worship him in spirit, that is, by faith in him whom we cannot see. And in truth, the truth that must be taught to us through the lively preaching of the word. And in this conversation, the woman was struck several times by the things he said. And she said to him, Sir, I know that Messiah is coming. I know that the Christ is going to come into the world. And when Christ comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. And then Jesus said to her, I who am speaking to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I have come to tell you all things. All things that you need to know about salvation and all things you need to know about worship. And Jesus, therefore, teaches us what is the God-pleasing way to communicate who God is, to teach God? We must worship him in spirit and in truth, and therefore he must be taught in spirit and in truth as well. And Jesus demonstrates how to do that by the example of his own ministry. The ministry of Jesus was in the text that we read and throughout all the Gospels, a ministry of preaching. Now it's true, he did miracles as well, but it was all to confirm the truth of what he was preaching. And he preached himself as the Christ, the Savior of the world. It's through the lively preaching of the word that God is pleased to reveal himself. And that doesn't mean that we don't make any reference to the creatures around us Jesus in his preaching often told parables and he painted word pictures, beautiful word pictures. But those aren't graven images. Those are pictures that are being painted in the minds and hearts of God's people through the preaching of his word. So God reveals throughout the whole of the scriptures that he will have us taught not by dumb images but by the lively preaching Of his word, because God reveals who he is in his word. He reveals everything about himself in the Holy Scriptures, made up of these 66 wonderful books, which we know as the Bible. Through these books, which tell the story of creation, the fall of man, and the redemption of Christ, these books, which lay out for us the laws of the Lord and their application to our lives. These books of poetry, songs, psalms, proverbs, wisdom. These books of sound doctrine and prophecy about the things that are yet to come to pass. In all of these books, which all revolve around God and his Christ, God would have us to learn who he is. As those scriptures are preached to us by his servants. Because the lively preaching of the word of God is the work of the minister of the gospel explaining the text of scripture, unpacking, unfolding, expounding the meaning of the text of scripture and proclaiming it as the truth of who God is, unraveling before our eyes, the manifold riches of God in Christ Jesus from the scriptures. That's what the lively preaching of the word is. God will not have us taught by dumb images. God will not have us set up here in the church an image made of gold or silver and have the minister then point to that image and say, this is what God is like. Do you see these features of the image? That's what God is like. No. Images cannot speak. Images have mouths that don't speak. God will have us to be taught by living men. Men who can speak. Men whom he calls and sends and authorizes to lift up their voice and to speak and to say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold your God, people of God. This is what God is like. This is who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that can take place anywhere in the world. When Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that the hour is coming, verse 21, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, that hour has now come. Jesus means to say that God is being made known, not just here in Jerusalem, and certainly not there in Samaria, but God is now going to be made known in places all throughout the world, not just in a magnificent temple like the one in Jerusalem, not just in magnificent, beautiful church buildings, which you may find scattered throughout the prosperous West, But God can even be made known in ramshackle bamboo huts found in the tropical islands of the sea, which are knocked over by every typhoon that comes through. Whether here or there, everywhere, God is being made known through the lively preaching of his word so that men are being brought to faith and led to worship the one true God. As the one who is called to bring the lively preaching of the word from this pulpit from week to week, I feel that I have to tell you this morning that I tremble at the task assigned to me. And I pray regularly that God will strengthen me with wisdom in the crafting of these sermons, in the study from day to day, to bring the lively preaching on the Lord's Day. And I pray, too, that God will give me humility, boldness, love, and joy in the delivery of those sermons here in the pulpit on the Lord's Day. That's my job. That's the task assigned to me. It's a terrible task in some ways, a task far above any individual man. We are mere earthen vessels, pots of clay, weak mere sinful humans. But the prayer of the preacher is that God will nevertheless use that preaching to make himself known to his people. And you, as those who are called to come to this place on the Lord's day, to sit here and to listen and to learn from the lively preaching of the word, make it your prayer that you will come to church hungry for the lively preaching, hungry and thirsty to hear and to learn about God, your God, the true and living God who created you and who created the whole world. Make it your prayer that you will come to church not with sleepy eyes, but wide awake, not with boredom, but with zeal and readiness and interest to receive what God has to say to you today. Make your prayer that you will be like the Bereans, who we are told searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and they received the Word with readiness of mind when it was preached to them. Make it your prayer that you will come to church and do what Ezekiel and John once did in a vision. When God said to Ezekiel and later to John, Take this roll, a scroll of the Holy Scriptures, and eat it. And the prophet took that, which was the Word of God, and in the vision, he ate it, chewed it, swallowed it, and it came into his stomach as a picture of how we are to receive the Word of God with hunger, devouring it, eating it, and taking it into our souls. In the second place this morning, the second commandment teaches us the way to respond to that lively preaching of the word. When the word is preached, and we learn who and what God is, and what he is to us as our God and Savior, the only appropriate response is thankful worship. But the child of God needs to know, how am I to worship him? How does God want me to worship him? How can I worship him in a way that pleases him and not in a way that displeases him? The teachers of religion from the dawn of time have invented all kinds of ways to worship their gods. And they invent those methods of worship themselves. They dream them up, they imagine them, they imagine what they think their God wants. And then they give it and often that is through creation of graven images so that they bow down to those images and serve their gods they think through their images they pray to the image they worship the image they they sing to the image but how ought we to worship the Lord our God the God whom we have never seen whom we cannot see because He dwells in the inapproachable light whom we will only ever be able to see in the face of Jesus Christ when we arrive in glory. How are we to worship him who is a spirit of incomparable greatness, of great holiness and awesome power? God tells us in the second commandment, not with graven images, but only in the ways that I command you in my word. I will tell you how to worship me in the scriptures. We call that truth the regulative principle of worship. It's a great and very important principle that is taught in the reformed faith. It's a principle of God's word. The principle comes from the second commandment. The principle is, how are we to worship God only in the ways he teaches us in his word? Not in the ways that we dream up. Not in the ways that we think are good. But in the ways God tells us to. The second commandment of the law teaches us that God regulates how we worship him. God regulates that. He doesn't leave it up to us to decide. And We can be thankful for that as well. God decides for us, and God tells us. God requires us to worship him in the ways that please him most, not the ways that please us most. The children of Israel were seduced time and again as they looked around them at the ways the heathen were worshiping their gods. And they wanted to do that. So, for example, at Mount Sinai, They told Aaron to make them a golden calf, and they gave him their gold earrings and bracelets and necklaces, and he melted it all in the fire. And when it cooled off a bit, he shaped and fashioned it into the form of this calf, so that they danced and sang and worshipped around that calf. That was fun. That was exciting. That was pleasing to their flesh. That's the kind of worship they wanted the kind of worship that had all the trappings of paganism. Once again, we must remember that we are not better than them. We, too, want to worship in all the ways that are attractive to our senses, attractive to our flesh. Perhaps we observe, maybe on television, the way the world worships. For example, at the rock concert or at the talent show. We see the worldly people all gathered there in the audience, in the temple, and up on the stage are their gods. Humans, but they're their gods. And the way they're worshipping is they're observing their god on the stage, singing and jumping and shouting and dancing in the midst of the smoke and the haze of the concert with the flashing lights and the loud pounding music and it's all attractive to the flesh it's all pleasing to the eyes and the ears and we see that the world looking up at their god or their goddess dancing around often scantily clothed in seductive appearance and we can be tempted to think well i want to worship that way too that looks exciting that looks fun why can't we incorporate some of that into our Boring, old-fashioned worship services. Why can't we have at least a little bit of that? A little bit of that pounding music and flashing lights and smoke. Something that appeals to the eyes and the flesh and the ears a little more. And really, that's the same old way of thinking, isn't it? It's a desire to worship God in the ways that please us most. That appeal to our flesh but the whole point of the second commandment is God says to us I want you to worship in the ways that please me not the ways that please you however when we worship in the ways that God please, that please God when we do that by faith we find that it pleases us as well it pleases our new man it strengthens us, encourages us, it edifies us when we worship in the ways that God wants us to worship. How does God want us to worship? He lays it all out in his word. We don't find anything in the scriptures about the use of dramatizations or the use of loud, pounding, worldly, sensual music. We find in the scriptures the promotion of a simple, God-glorifying Kind of worship. He says, for example, in Psalm 149 Sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. And the Apostle Paul writes, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And there he condemns the wild, excessive, unbridled kinds of worship too. Be not drunk with wine. Don't be engaged in indulgence, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And when the child of God hears that, we say, Amen, that's how I want to worship. That's how I will worship my God, who first loved me. I will sing unto him a new and joyful song. I will come into his house with that song on my lips, that song in my heart, and I will make melody to the Lord in the congregation of the saints. I want to sing to God not songs that are pleasing to the flesh, not songs that are filled with the lies of Satan in the world, but I want to sing the songs of Zion, the songs of the Lord, the songs that come from the scriptures, the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs of God's word. I want to sing the songs that exalt the name of the Lord our God and our salvation in Christ. And I want to lift up those songs to God on the wings of fitting music, the kind of music described in the scriptures, the harp and the organ and so forth. Not wild, sensual, worldly music, but godly, joyful, reverent music. That's the kind of worship that we desire, isn't it? To give to God. Not that we're sitting in the audience watching people perform up on the stage as the world does, but that we all together engage in congregational singing. That's what God wants. In the second place, God tells us in his word in many, many places that we are to worship him in prayer. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. He says to Timothy, giving him instructions for life in the church and worship in the church, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Sometimes we can become a little bit too critical, perhaps, of other Christians and the way they worship, and thinking everything they do is wrong, like if they might lift up their hands in prayer to the Lord. The apostle tells us to do that, that men pray everywhere in the church, lifting up hands, holy hands, without wrath and doubting. So we are to worship God in prayer. Prayer is not just a way of Asking God for the things that we need, although when we do that, when we ask for the things that we truly need, we are worshiping him because we are acknowledging that he alone is able to give us those things. But it's not just to ask him for the things we want or the things we need. Prayer is a way of expressing our love and adoration for God. It's a way of telling God how great he is, how glorious, how adorable we need to learn that the first petition of the Lord's prayer is hallowed be thy name and so we say to the Lord you want us to pray we will pray we will join in the congregation of the saints also on the Lord's Day and when the minister calls us to congregational prayer we will say to ourselves this is not a time to get sleepy or to fall asleep or to allow our minds to drift away This is a time for intense, careful uh, attention and participation. So that when the minister is praying, we are praying. We We are reiterating the prayer in our own mind, in our own soul. So that it becomes ours. And we say the very same things the minister says after him in our hearts. God wants us to worship him in prayer. In the third place, God teaches us in the scriptures that we are to worship by bringing an offering. Psalm 96, verse 8, tells us that we are to worship the Lord, and it says, Bring an offering and come into his courts. We aren't to come empty-handed to church. We are to bring our offerings. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, the apostle says to the church at Corinth, Upon the first day of the week, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, let every one of you lay by him in store. As God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Prepare for the Lord's day. Think ahead to the Lord's day so that you're ready to bring your offering to the church. That's a kind of worship as well. Like we read in Proverbs chapter 3, Honor the Lord with the firstfruits of thine increase, Honor the Lord. Worship the Lord with your offerings. The giving of offerings is not just a necessary evil or a duty that we just have to do. It's an act of worship. As we're saying to the Lord, These good gifts thou hast given to me, I give a portion of them back to you. For thy kingdom, for thy glory, for thy church, for thy poor, for thy schools. That's an act of worship when we do it by faith. Fourthly, the scriptures teach us that we are to worship God with the sacraments. We talked about the preaching in the first point. That too is a part of worship. This is worship right now. Listening to the preaching. Listening to God. Not to a man. Listening to God. That's an act of worship. But then so also are the sacraments. The scriptures tell us Jesus says baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and take, eat, do this in remembrance of me, drink, eat all of it. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. The baptism and the Lord's Supper are ways of worship as well. Where we celebrate and remember what God has done through Christ for our salvation. So these and perhaps a few other things could be added. These are the God-given elements of worship. And everything else then, the worship building, the fabric and the pews, all these other things, whether we use an organ or a piano or some other kind of musical instrument, all of these are things that are intended to accompany and enhance and help us in those kinds of worship that God desires. They are not to become distractions then, So that all the attention is taken away from congregational singing to perhaps a soloist or a choir or someone performing a musical piece. Rather, these are to support and enhance what God desires, the congregational singing and so forth. Now finally this morning, the second commandment then certainly applies also to the way that we come to God in our worship. God desires that we come to him with the right mindset, with the right frame of mind and heart. Go back to the conversation of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He said to her that those who worship the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. That means that we not only need to worship him in truth. We not only need to know the truth and make sure that we worship him in the true and right manner. All of that can still be done in a way that is an abomination to God. It can. As our Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. And honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, the Pharisees were not worshiping in spirit or in truth. But we can see from what Jesus says there it is possible to have the truth, but still to worship God in a merely formal and external manner. God wants our hearts. Worship Him in spirit. That not only means that since God is a spirit, we have to worship Him in a spiritual way by faith, but it also means we are to worship God from our spirit, from our soul, our heart, our mind. And that means that when we come to church, we're not just sitting in the pew and in the body. Maybe from all outward appearances, we're present. But inside, our hearts and minds were far away. Maybe we're bored, silly. Maybe we can't wait for this to be done so we can get out of here and get on with our lives. If that's true, then we need to hear that rebuke of the Lord. Jesus teaches that the true worshipers are those who come to the Father in spirit and in truth. That is, our spirit. Is filled with joy, with thanksgiving, with interest, with eagerness to come to worship. That's what God looks for in the true worshiper. When the Psalms say that we are to praise him in the dance, we get uncomfortable with things like that. How are we supposed to implement that, pastor? What does that mean for us? Well, I don't necessarily know everything that that might mean, but I can tell you at least this much that it certainly means that when we come to God's house, we're jumping and dancing for joy in our spirit. Not with a dull, bored, indifferent kind of attitude. No, we dance with joy. God wants to see us dancing before him. Just like David as he went up to Mount Zion, he was dancing before the Lord, playing on his harp, singing, worshiping. That's what God looks for in the true worshipers. But then finally it means that we must worship him with reverence. There are those who see this calling to worship with joy and with a spirit-filled worship, and they forget about the need also to worship with reverence. There has to be a combination of joy and reverence, not the kind of wild, frenzied, unbridled worship that some bring. Because the scriptures also say, Psalm 96, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Habakkuk 2 verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So there has to be a reverence. And that explains much about our simple reformed style of worship. The recognition of the need for reverence in our worship of God. That we must remember who we're worshiping. The holy God, the righteous one, who is so high and glorious and lifted up in majesty. And that this great God is not a God of confusion and wild frenzy. He's a God of order and peace. God looks also for us to have order in our worship, spirit-filled and orderly and reverent. That's the kind of worship God wants. That's the kind of worship we are to bring. May God grant unto us then hearts of gratitude that desire to worship him from the heart in the ways that please him. Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to thee for this instruction we pray that Thou would take that word, that lively word, and impress it in our hearts. Father, grant that we would be true worshipers who come to Thy house in spirit and in truth, and also in the week, wherever we go, that we live worshipful lives that are conscious of Thy presence and Thy glory, and that seek. To exalt thy name, that to sing and dance for joy at thy salvation.